Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. China was the first country to have borne the brunt of COVID-19 at the start of 2020. Western news reports from late January of that year described the scenes in Wuhan with a sense of disbelief. Drastic measures to halt the spread of that deadly virus. Wuhan, China, ground zero for the outbreak now under lockdown. Most of the 17 dead and more than 500 sickened are in Wuhan, where today we saw the first images from the front lines. Patients in isolation units being treated by doctors in biohazard suits. Pharmacies struggling to keep masks on the shelves. The city of 11 million now halting all public transportation and outbound flights. Put on a face mask. Those emergency measures would soon become familiar throughout the world. Meanwhile, the Chinese government appears to have done a better job of containing the pandemic than the authorities in the US. Even the recent Delta outbreak hasn't proved to be as damaging for China as for many other countries. The experience of the pandemic has fed into perceptions that China will dominate this century in the way that America dominated the last one. Joe Biden has made it a priority to head off that danger before it becomes a reality. Our guest today for a conversation about China's political economy after COVID-19 is Ho Feng Hung. He's a professor in the sociology department at Johns Hopkins University and the author of The China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World. What was the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the Chinese economy in 2020 and how far has it managed to recover since then? For the immediate economic impact, of course, it is uh, great. Uh, it is dire, and as in many other places, and China was among the first economy hit by COVID, definitely. And then, of course, the Chinese government somehow managed to contain the spread of the virus with some extreme measure of lockdown and isolating the whole region of the countries. And during that time, production uh, ceased and consumption ceased and, and many activities stopped. But into the summer of 2020, when the virus was pretty much contained and the spread was stopped in China, that the economy rebounded. Uh, actually, the, with the help of a very uh, usual measure that Chinese government has been using to weather any economic storm, that is uh, the huge financial stimulus. Uh, it was just like uh, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis that in 2020, the Chinese government dictated the state bank to open the floodgate of lending. So you look at the data of um, the loan creation that it surged in the middle of 2020 and it paid off and there is a strong economic rebound. But this kind of um, the lending or financial stimulus, the drawback is that it increased the indebtedness of the economy that has been already haunting the economy since the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and 2009 stimulus and and, uh, rebound. So now that uh, into the middle of 2021, we already see that the Chinese economy is slowing again, weighed down by the heavy indebtedness of the economy of many corporations. So the pattern just recurred. Uh, It's just like the situation in the, the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. It rebound quickly with this stimulus, but that in the long run, it also created a kind of a drag on the long-term growth of the economy. Looking back over the past few years, how would you say the Trump administration affected political and economic relations between China and the US? It has uh, uh, impact, definitely, but the 
impact is not on the long-term direction of U.S.-China relation. As I uh, often argue in many different places, that uh, the U.S.-China relation turned from a kind of a honeymoon situation to a more rivaled uh, relation starting in the Obama second term. It was the aftermath of the global financial crisis that uh, the Chinese uh, state uh, became uh, more aggressive in securing the market share of domestic, particularly state-owned enterprises in China and later even expand overseas to compete with foreign corporations, including, of course, the U.S. corporations. So this kind of um, intensifying intercapitalist competition between Chinese corporations and U.S. corporations and other corporations from Europe and Japan in China and in the world uh, is the underlying forces behind the souring relation between U.S. and China. And it all started in the second uh, term of Obama administration. But the Obama administration did a lot of things uh, to to change its direction on U.S.-China policy, including the pivot to Asia, that is uh, to uh, deploy more military aircraft carriers and Navy uh, groups uh, to uh, the South China Sea to counteract China's claim of sovereignty against uh, China's neighbors in that region. At the same time, Obama also uh, speed up the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiation, with a kind of intention of uh, lining up U.S. allies and some lots of allies, including Vietnam, into a free trade pact excluding China to put pressure on China. So they had all the measures that uh, signaled uh, this change of relation, but uh, diplomatically that the Obama administration is still using very polite uh, rhetorics and, uh, and expression when it comes to discussing issues with China. What Trump changed is actually very interesting that in the early days of Trump administration, there's a sign that Trump might be softer on China than Obama administration. For example, in the first uh, half year after he inaugurated in 2017, Trump administration uh, stopped the freedom of navigation operation in South China Sea. That didn't send warship to South China Sea for a few months. It worried some of the Republicans as well as uh, Democrats as uh, that it is a sign of being too soft on China. So it is very ironic that so Trump came in as a softer president on China. But uh, of course, that the underlying uh, intensifying intercapitalist competition between U.S. and China didn't abate. So in the end, that Trump also have to get tougher on China on trade and many other issues. And, and of course, that the big difference between Trump and uh, Obama is that his rhetoric is more raw and uh, it used a lot of colorful language that impressed people and, and raised people awareness of what he's doing. And, and so it is kind of a popular perception that the U.S.-China relation uh, turned for the worst only under Trump. But in fact, it uh, started in the Obama administration and the Biden administration basically is uh, continuing many Obama-era approach to China. We'll take you straight to the White House, the President of the United States, announcing new trade tariffs against China. Let's when Trump it. announced new tariffs on Chinese imports in 2018, he suggested that China's own leadership would acknowledge that it was long overdue. We're doing things for this country that should have been done for many, many years. We've had this abuse by many other countries and groups of countries that were put together in order to take advantage of the United States. And we don't want that to happen. We're not going to let that happen. It's probably one of the reasons I was elected, maybe one of the main reasons, but we're not going to let that happen. 
The word is reciprocal. That's the word I want everyone to remember. If they charge us, we charge them the same thing. That's the way it's got to be. That's not the way it is. For many, many years, for many decades, it has not been that way. And I will say, the people we're negotiating with, smilingly, they really agree with us. I really believe they cannot believe they've gotten away with this for so long. The tariff war put Trump at odds with some leading American capitalists as well as the PRC. In September 2020, some major US firms filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration, as CNBC reported. It's being described as a tsunami of lawsuits as American companies, importers who have been paying these Trump tariffs are now suing uh, in a US court in order to block those tariffs in the future and maybe recoup some of what they've paid to the United States. Here's what's going on. Uh, It's about uh, 4,000 plaintiffs here filing more than 3,000 individual lawsuits. They're all filed in the U.S. Court of International Trade, and the companies involved here, some big names, include Tesla, Home Depot, Target, and Ford. That's a huge number of cases for a court that typically only processes about 350 cases a year, now dealing with thousands of cases all filed at once in order to beat a deadline that was earlier this week. By that stage, Trump's rhetorical jousting with China had shifted focus to the pandemic blame game. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot of people say it's racist. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. That's why comes from China. I and want to be accurate. Yeah, please, John. Please. Um, I have a great, I have great love uh, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Uh, it comes from China. How would you assess the policy of the new Biden administration towards China? And how does the Chinese leadership perceive Biden and his team? For one thing, the the Chinese administration didn't have any uh, fantasy about the Biden administration. They they are very much aware that this uh, U.S. uh, increasingly hotline approach that China started with uh, Obama administration and definitely and it's interestingly that during the 2016 election that many official medias and official scholars and commentators in China are, are hoping out loud that uh, Trump will win uh, because they see that uh, the Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton administration will continue a lot of policy of the Obama administration to get tough on China, not only on trade, but also human rights and many other things. So actually, that is interestingly that many Chinese official scholars and media hope that Trump could win. But there's no fantasy about uh, Trump later on when the structural forces uh, push Trump to a more hardline approach on China. And uh, the same can be said with regard to the Biden administration. So during the election last year, that uh, there has been a lot of talk in among official scholars and official uh, media in China uh, saying that uh, the Biden administration would not be much different from the Trump administration when it came to China policy. After all, a lot of tough measures on China didn't come from the White House, uh, but came from Congress with uh, bipartisan support. So on one hand, China didn't have much 
fantasy about binary administration will totally change the direction. And in reality, that we all now see that uh, Biden administration has been very tough on on, on China. On he didn't uh, revoke the uh, Trump tariff on China, um, and uh, in the first few months, that the Biden administration has been very active in lining up uh, allies in Europe and, and in Asia to create a united front uh, to uh, confront China. So not only in terms of rhetoric, but also in terms of actual policy, in terms of trade, it is very clear that Biden administration didn't pull any punch and uh, con- and also continue many policy in the Trump era. You argued in your book, The China Boom, a number of years ago, that it was a mistake to imagine China could actually overtake the US in the global economic hierarchy. What was your reasoning behind that argument at the time, and do you think it still holds true today? I think it still holds true today that when because when we come to China, um, that uh, uh, that it is uh, very important to distinguish the rhetorics and propaganda from the reality. That we know from the Chinese official media that there's a lot of talk about China is going to overtake U.S. in many uh, aspects, uh, and China, for example, the China currency is going to become a dominant global currency that uh, can topple the U.S. dollar in Germany. So there's a lot of this talk, uh, but uh, how much of it uh, reflects reality is, is questionable. So in my last book, The China Bone, what I argue is that uh, we need to look at the data. We look at, need to look at the reality, uh, a lot to be clouded or fooled by the propaganda that definitely that China is a very successful economy, is a very important economy, is the one of the most important market that most uh, corporations have to be vying to get into. But at the same time, that on many important aspects, that China still far behind uh, US in in many aspects. For example, in terms of currency, that when the global economic crisis happened in two thousand eight, there's a lot of talk about the US dollar how Germany is over, uh, and the Chinese. Uh, the currency is going to replace the U.S. dollar as the global currency or standard reserve currency. But the matter of fact that you see that uh, now, more than 10 years after the global financial crisis, the, the U.S. dollar uh, is still the standard currency of transaction and reserve currency in the world. And then the Chinese um, currency didn't make a lot of headway. Actually, there's some regression in terms of uh, the international use because the Chinese uh, Communist Party is jealously guarding its financial system lot to open its uh, China's capital account. So the Chinese currency is not yet freely convertible. So even in many Belt and Road countries, when China lend money to its, its labor and then also to many other countries in, outside the region, like in Latin America, including Venezuela, so they didn't land in the Chinese currency. They land in the U.S. dollar. And China is competing with Japan to become the top lender to many Southeast Asian countries, for example, but uh, China outcompete Japan because uh, as Japan, many Japanese loan to these Southeast Asian countries are in yen, the Japanese currency, but the Chinese offer to, the Chinese government offered to lend in the US dollar so that uh, many Southeast Asian countries like to borrow from China because it's US dollar. So, he, and, and also China export is also mostly invoice in US dollar. So the international use of the Chinese currency is far behind um, uh, not only the U.S., but also the British pound sterling and, and the yen. I mean, others. Uh, so this talk about Chinese currency toppling the U.S. Uh, dollar hegemony is is totally overblown. And another area is microchip, uh, computer chips making. Again, that China rely on the U.S. or U.S. allies supply of microchips as the Trump uh, 
uh, sanction on China showed that uh, after the U.S. imposed a policy of cutting off China's uh, high-tech firm from uh, supplies from U.S. or U.S. Uh, allies in terms of microchips, that many the Chinese high-tech em- enterprise suddenly got into big trouble. They, they cannot get enough supply uh, of the microchips. So the high-end microchips and also the, the currency is two areas show that China is still much far behind the U.S. in terms of uh, competing for the top uh, spot in the global economy, and it will take a long time to, uh, before China managed to do just half of that. You can track China's shifting relationship with global capitalism in popular culture as well as the financial press. The James Bond movies have often reflected Western geopolitical stereotypes as faithfully as a mirror. Oh, Mr. Bond, sit down, please. In Goldfinger, made in 1964, yes, communist Sounds China appears as a mortal enemy of Western capitalism. The so-called Red Chinese commissioned the film's arch-villain to explode a nuclear device at Fort Knox and provoke financial chaos. You plan to break into the world's largest bank, but not to steal anything. Why? Go on, Mr. Bond. Mr. Ling, the Red Chinese agent at the factory. He's a specialist in nuclear fission. But of course, his government's given you a bomb. I prefer to call it an atomic device. It's small, but particularly dirty. Cobalt and iodine? Precisely. Well, if you explode it in Fort Knox, the uh, entire gold supply of the United States will be radioactive for 57 years. 58, to be exact. I apologize, Goldfinger. It's an inspired deal. They get what they want, economic chaos in the West, and the value of your gold increases many times. I conservatively estimate ten times. Brilliant. Three decades later, the villain of Tomorrow Never Dies is a media tycoon called Elliot Carver, who is transparently based on Rupert Murdoch. Carver decides to provoke a war between China and Britain by faking an act of Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. By a curious quirk of fate, we have the perfect story with which to launch our satellite news network tonight. It seems a small crisis is brewing in the South China Seas. I want full newspaper coverage. I want magazine stories. I want books. I want films. I want TV. I want radio. I want us on the air 24 hours a day. This is our moment. And a billion people around this planet will watch it, hear it, and read about it from the Carver Media Group. There's no news, like bad news. Just like the real-life Rupert Murdoch at the time, Carver wants to crack into the Chinese television market. His war scheme is part of a conspiracy with a rogue PLA general. The general will seize power in Beijing and grant Carver the opening that he's looking for. Bond has to work with a Chinese government agent, played by a star of Hong Kong cinema, to foil Carver's plot. It's a nice metaphor for the wider shift from outright antagonism to an uneasy state of codependency. British Secret Service agent James Bond and his collaborator Wei Lin of the Chinese People's External Security Force were found dead this morning in Vietnam. Lax punch, don't you think? It's old news, Elliot. We've been working together for months. Both our governments know what you and General Chang are up to. (laughs) I don't think so. 
Skyfall, released in 2012, was clearly angling for its own share of the Chinese market. Bond travels to Shanghai at an early stage of the movie, mainly for the opportunity that it offers to include some spectacular shots of the city's ultra-modern skyline. Unlike many of its predecessors, Skyfall was approved for release in China, but the censors cut scenes that featured the murder of a Chinese security guard and a reference to child prostitution in Macau. What do you think has been genuinely distinctive about the leadership of Xi Jinping? Uh, many people would think that the Xi Jinping uh, make a huge departure from previous uh, leaders, and, and no doubt about it. Then Xi Jinping has been more confident, has been more aggressive in many, in many regards. In terms of, uh, for example, uh, unleashing its diplomats to to treat insults on uh, U.S. leaders and and and, and U.S. Uh, officials and things like that. But on the other hand, there's a lot of, again, that just like in the U.S., that uh, Trump might uh, look like a big shift, uh, but actually behind the veteran, the shift has been already happening uh, in a more structural manner. And the same uh, can be said with regard to China, that Xi Jinping came in power fully in 2013. Then his rhetoric and then his style is definitely more aggressive. And, uh, and another big change he made is that to abolish the term two-term limit of a Chinese top leader, meaning that he can be a lifelong dictator, a lot like his predecessor, that there's a very definite term limit that uh, everybody will expect uh, whoever on top to be leaving the scene in um, 10 years. Uh, but Xi Jinping make himself uh, possibly a lifelong uh, leaders of China, just like Putin in Russia. Uh, so there's a big change. But uh, again, there's a lot of change uh, of China the policy toward the U.S. and U.S. corporations and so on and so forth is more structural. For example, that uh, this uh, revival of state capitalism and the squeezing of private sectors as well as foreign companies uh, started in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. So the watershed mo- moment uh, is not really Xi Jinping coming to power, coming to power, but, uh, but the global financial crisis of 2008. Because after 2008, that uh, China had this huge uh, mega financial stimulus uh, using state bank lending to keep a lot of uh, enterprise, particularly well-connected state enterprise afloat, uh, even though they are profitless, um, but they still get all the loans and, and financial resources. So there's a kind of overcapacity issues um, and indebtedness issues of many state enterprises inflated by the financial stimulus. So the aftermath of this stimulus in 2009-2010 is that China is struggling with uh, economic slowdown, indebtedness, and and a kind of a, a sluggish uh, of the economy. It's a typical over-accumulation crisis that actually Japan also experienced after the 1990s. And then the, the solution uh, to this over-accumulation crisis has been to... Uh, is a shrinking pie, so that they just try to expand the slice uh, of the state enterprises of that shrinking pie, and to squeeze uh, private enterprise and foreign enterprise in China and abroad more aggressively, and also start to export capital to digest the surplus capital and then overcapacity. Uh, the steel is one big example that uh, China used to be a big steel consumer, not an exporter, but after the uh, 2010. Stimulus, uh, 2009-2010 stimulus, China has a huge overcapacity in steel, so it uh, started to, to export steel to all around the world aggressively. It created trade friction uh, with uh, with a lot of developed countries, including uh, South Korea and, and, and Europe. 
so there is this kind of uh, a watershed moment is the 2008 financial crisis and the 2009-2010 Chinese stimulus that create this over-accumulation crisis within the Chinese economy that uh, turned the Chinese state to be more aggressive um, in competing with U.S. and many other foreign corporations uh, and it predated the rise of the Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping, like Trump, is just uh, make this... Uh, the trend already in place more apparent with a more aggressive rhetoric and style. What do you think lies behind the recent crackdown by the Chinese government on some major companies, in particular tech companies? It is a very um, interesting phenomenon that uh, many people are discussing right now and some will say that oh, the, the Chinese government finally pay attention to social justice and, and to crack down on big business monopoly. Uh, but you look at... Um, the target of the crackdown now is that uh, it first is, of course, the, the big tech company, the Alibaba Financial Wing, um, that is the end financial group that they uh, used to schedule a kind of an IPO in overseas market, but the Chinese government uh, stopped it in the last minute. And also that another big tech company, Tencent, is under huge pressure, uh, criticism and regulatory pressure from the state. And But it moved beyond the big tech. It moved to all kind of a privately owned big companies in China and some kind of a, uh, business sectors were hit. For example, this like extracurricular tutoring, education, uh, service industry, and some kind of food delivery platform companies and many other companies are squeezed. And But uh, I'm skeptical whether it is uh, out of the concern of uh, promoting social justice and cracking down on monopoly because you look at the target of this crackdown, it is uh, the, all cracking down on these uh, private sectors and private big companies in China and then the well-connected state company or the far-side state company state-owned enterprises still got all the support they had to be, continue to be a monopoly um, in the Chinese economy and in overseas economy. So the, it is more about this kind of uh, insecurity felt by the state about its control of the economy. So it is going all the way after uh, all these kind of uh, private companies and then to secure the state companies can continue to be the, the dominant force, a lot to be overshadowed by the private enterprises. And of course, in, in, in Chinese history, since the 18th century, the Qing dynasty to Lao, there is this kind of a recurrent theme of the state using private entrepreneurs to grow the economy and benefit the state revenues and, and the, the, the strength of the empire. But at the same time, when these private merchants became too influential, too powerful, then the state uh, start to worry about them and start to crack down on them uh, and in some cases uh, confiscate their wealth and arrest, put them under arrest and so on and so forth. So I think it is the kind of a recurrence of this kind of history that in early stage of economic growth that the Chinese state uh, has been using, uh, the same can be said with regard to foreign companies uh, and, and uh, foreign companies and private company to facilitate the growth and then to help uh, the projection of the, the Chinese state power abroad. Uh, but uh, when they grow too big, that uh, particularly in this uh, long economic slowdown after 2009-2010 uh, stimulus, that the states uh, start to lead to feel the lead to crack down on this uh, private enterprise and private entrepreneurs uh, to make room for the continuous and enlarged dominance uh, of state enterprises. So I think it is the main impetus behind this, uh, this uh, recent crackdown on big tech and other big uh, private enterprises. 
What are the prospects for a Chinese labour movement, or at any rate for action by Chinese workers that is independent of the state? We, we, uh, in the last 10 years or so, we see actually that uh, there's, uh, China had, had no independent labor union, but we see a lot of wildcat strike and, and sporadic uh, labor unrest uh, here and there across uh, the country. And it did create results, and many people point out that uh, the new labor law that was instituted in the early 2000s before 2008 it, uh, was a kind of a, a result of this kind of a sporadic labor unrest, labor protest that uh, put pressure on the state to do something uh, to improve the labor condition. But of course, that it is always a kind of a cat and mouse uh, game that when the labor uh, win back something that the state and the capitalists always uh, find a way to get around, as many people already point out that uh, manufacturers and, and employers already managed to find a way to get around the new labor law. Uh, to uh, continue to put uh, labor into more precarious situation and so on and so forth. So uh, on the surface, we don't see a lot of um, so-called the typical kind of labor movement, but I'm confident that this kind of uh, unorganized, spontaneous and sporadic labor protests and labor unrest, as in many other RAM, for example, this resident movement, community protests, and we still occasionally hear about that it is going to continue. It didn't need a kind of a formal organization. And as Pippen uh, and Carl Paul now in the book, Poor People Movement, that sometimes labor movement can get more result when it's less organized and more spontaneous and sporadic rather than a more institutionalized uh, form of labor movement. So that for the time being, that provided uh, with the condition of the pandemics and the very aggressive crackdown on civil society of the Chinese government, it seems that uh, protests uh, of all kinds have died down. But if we take a longer term perspective, that I am uh, quite uh, sure and confident that this kind of a sporadic, spontaneous labor protest and unrest will continue uh, in different sectors. Uh, sometimes it might not be a protest, sometimes it might be a kind of everyday life, uh, everyday form of uh, resistance, uh, including evasion and and all kind of uh, avoidance, evasions and, and all kind of tactics. And, and I'm sure that this kind of resistance will go on and make change in the long run. What environmental policies are being implemented by the Chinese leadership over the coming years? And how would you say the rivalry between China and the US is likely to affect the handling of the global climate crisis? Definitely, that is uh, the cliche is that, of course, the U.S. and China has to cooperate that to solve the global um, climate crisis. Uh, the, in, in terms of China, uh, we see that there's some uh, progress in terms of this uh, expansion of electric vehicle, production of electric vehicle, and China has become the top uh, producers of solar panel and wind turbine and things like that. So, But there's also contradictions uh, because in in terms of environmental policy and environmental-related uh, policies, and, and China see a lot of contradiction. On the one hand, China see the uh, the, the future and the, the market uh, for this kind of a green technology products uh, like wind turbine and solar panel and electric vehicle, and invest a lot and and push uh, for the uh, expansion of the capacity in those sectors. But at the same time, that China has all these kind of a uh, all sectors from steel mill to coal plants uh, that still experience uh, overcapacity and then still a lot of vested interest in the state and beyond are tied to these sectors. So you see that uh, China is still, the growth in this uh, coal plant capacity is still growing. And uh, more troubling is that it's still exporting coal plants to 
Kakao and World countries uh, to many other developing countries because that China just like steel making uh, manufacturing that uh, China has a spare capacity. It manifests kind of a over accumulation crisis uh, symptoms, and so it had to tackle this problem. And rather let them die and bust, and then they try to export the spare capacity in those uh, polluting sectors and greenhouse gas uh, creating sectors to other places. So this is a mixed bag that uh, we see that trying to see a huge expansion of the green sectors, green technology sector, but also there's a huge expansion and continuous expansion and exporting of many of these old sectors. And uh, of course, then and in the end, that China will lead to if China was included and and uh, joined uh, the global effort uh, to fight climate change at, at, in a serious way, not in a lip service kind of manner, that China need the more coordinated efforts in terms of these kind of energy sectors and uh, new green technology sector, old and new sectors. But right now it is not very much coordinated. So we see this contradiction and uh, the logic behind this growth of either the coal plants capacity and also the green technology sector is not particularly driven by the consideration of the global climate crisis, but it's driven by the yeah. consideration of economic growth and uh, the over-accumulation crisis. Many thanks to Ho Feng Hung for that account of China's political and economic life in the wake of the pandemic. You can find some of his articles on China at the websites for Jacobin and Catalysts.